0: So hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Philosophical Disquisitions podcast. In this particular episode, I'm going to be talking to Carissa Villis. Carissa is a former guest on this podcast. She's appeared on two previous occasions. She is currently an associate professor at the Faculty of Philosophy and the Institute of Ethics and AI at Oxford University. She's also a tutorial fellow at Hertford College, Oxford. She works a lot on privacy, technology, moral and political philosophy, and public policy. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about a recent book that she's published called Privacy is Power. So this is an excellent, accessible book about digital surveillance, the surveillance capitalist economy, and what it is doing to our society. It's detailed, thoughtful, but also, I think, accessible to anyone even people without a background in philosophy. So we, in this episode, we have an interesting conversation about some of the key themes and arguments in the book. We certainly don't cover all of the territory in the book, and if you're interested in what we talk about, I highly recommend that you check out and purchase a copy of Privacy is Power. Okay, as per usual, if you enjoy this episode, please rate, review promote, support it on Apple or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever medium or service you prefer to use for listening to podcasts, and that'll help to spread the word and grow the show, so that'd be much appreciated. Okay, and without further ado, I'm going to hand over now to the conversation that I had with Carissa. Okay, Carissa, so we're going to talk about this uh, new book that you've published, uh, Privacy is Power, which uh, seems to be making great waves at the moment and seems to be getting a lot of attention, probably capturing to some extent the mood of the moment and concerns that people are having around digital technology and surveillance. Uh, One of the first questions I wanted to ask you about it was, I think maybe the opening chapter or maybe the second chapter of the book, you describe a day in the life of somebody in the surveillance economy or the uh, surveillance capitalist economy discussing all the examples of devices that they use and the way in which they collect data. Now, I imagine that many people listening to this podcast are familiar with some of that detail and some of that information. And I don't want to rehash all the examples that you have in that chapter. But I was wondering if you could maybe share with us, what are some of the most surprising or interesting examples of surveillance technologies that people maybe don't appreciate or fully realize exist in their lives?
1: One that really surprised me is the existence of audio beacons. Companies want to know that you are the same person who watched an ad in the morning on your TV or on your laptop, and then you went to the store and bought that product. And the way that they infer that it's you is through audio beacons that are broadcasted through possibly TV commercials or radio commercials or in the music when you go to the shop. And then these beacons, even though we can't hear them, your phone picks them up and then broadcasts uh, something back. And that way they know that it's your phone rather than somebody else's phone. So that was something very surprising to me. Another surprising thing was to what extent smart appliances are all surveilling us. So one example is smart cars. There are some kinds of data that you might imagine, you know, that's more, less surprising that they collect like location data and how fast you drive you would sort of expect that but there's some data that you wouldn't expect like they're interested in what kind of music you are listening to and then all kinds of corporations like banks try to infer things about your mood and about who you are based on your music preferences and then the seat in your car is even tracking your weight which was very surprising to me but in fact I actually didn't publish what I found most surprising because I find it too dangerous. I think it's not very well known and I was afraid that if somebody were to read it, they would come up with a very easy way to uh, possibly abuse that method to intrude in other people's lives and, and maybe something bad could come of that. So I actually didn't publish what I find most troubling.
0: Okay. Well, that's... uh. Interesting, and I guess you won't share it now either because that would also defeat the purpose of um, kind of concealing that information from people. Exactly. Okay, so maybe we can discuss what it is offline and not record it, because I'm now intrigued. Yes. Um, so you know, in that chapter, the scenario that you described, the day in the life, seems very dystopian, Black Mirror-esque, I guess. Uh, is that... A worst-case scenario, or is that actually the reality that many of us are living with, that we, we are being tracked and traced all day long, and we just don't really appreciate how pervasive this surveillance is?
1: I think the latter. I do go into some worst-case scenarios for the possible consequences of that data collection, but I actually don't overstate in the slightest the data collection that everyone is being subjected to. In fact, if anything, I probably understated because there are always new surveillance tools and methods that are typically not advertised to citizens, even though they're being used on us. And we learn about them much later on. So one of the frightening aspects of the surveillance society is how much data is being collected on everyone, every step you take during the day from the time you wake up. In fact, before then, throughout the night, your mobile phone is um sending off data that it gathered through the day to all these apps and all these corporations that you don't know about and you, you know, don't know how they're going to use that data. And it's very sensitive data. It's data regarding where you live, whom you sleep with, um, whether you sleep well or not, at what time do you wake up, what you buy, where you go. And that can, a lot of sensitive inferences can be made from that, like whether you talk to a journalist or a lawyer or whether you are having too many trips to the hospital and you might be ill, or whether you 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 went to an abortion clinic, it's really sensitive stuff, and that's happening for everyone every day.
0: So, I mean, I want to maybe talk about some of the kind of philosophical arguments and assumptions underlying the book? And I, look, I guess the obvious place to start is with the concept of privacy itself. I mean, how would you define or understand what what privacy is?
1: In my dissertation, I define it in a much more technical way to be as precise as possible. But for the purposes of this discussion and and the book, we can say that privacy is about being able to keep certain intimate things to yourself, things like your thoughts, your experiences, your conversations, your plans. And human beings need privacy to be able to unwind from the burden of being with other people and from the risks that that sociality involves. We need privacy to explore new ideas freely, to make up our own minds about what we think about the world and ourselves and others, and privacy protects us from unwanted pressures and abuses of power.
0: Okay, I mean, so that kind of gets into my next question that I wanted to ask, again, which is a more philosophical question. So privacy it is, it has to do with the information about ourselves and our thoughts and our decisions and so forth, and it's valuable in some way, but... I mean, what kind of a value is it? Is it some, in some sense, a basic value that it's just important that people have some space of privacy in and of itself, irrespective of its consequences? Or is it a more instrumental value, or maybe a a mix of both things?
1: I think it's a mix of both things. It depends on how we cash out exactly what it means for something to be an intrinsic value. But Two thought experiments might help in getting an intuition about why it might be an intrinsic value. One is, um, so imagine you have a neighbor and somehow this neighbor thinks that their windows are protecting them from view from others. And yet you realize that you can see everything that goes on in their house and you realize that they, they haven't realized that. Now, suppose you know that you're the only neighbor that can watch this because you live somewhere remote. And suppose further that you're a very good person. You're never going to abuse this information. You're not going to use them against them. And this doesn't make them uncomfortable because they don't know that you can see everything that they do. I think there's the intuition that you should still tell them about it. And you you shouldn't watch, even if you can, without any apparent consequences. And the flip side of that is another thought experiment in which we imagine you can choose between two worlds. In world one, there is a benevolent watcher that is looking at you all the time. They will never abuse that information and they will never interfere with your life. And furthermore, you won't know that they're watching because you'll take a pill that makes you forget this fact. And you have to choose between this world or one exactly the same world in which no one is watching. I think most people would be more comfortable knowing that nobody is watching. And that sort of gives us a feel for, for why we we think it may be an intrinsic value. But even if you don't think it's an intrinsic value, privacy is valuable enough as an instrumental value.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose the concept of an intrinsic value is problematic in philosophy. And, you know, I get the thought experiments are to try and paint a scenario in which there is no consequential harm to the information or data being collected or to the intrusion into the privacy but we still seem to care about it in that scenario i guess there's always concerns about thought experiments like that as to whether people can really think about them as clearly as philosophers might like them to think about them and whether they can actually rule out the potential consequential harms when they're asked for their intuition to it but if we accept that privacy is an instrumental value it's important i mean what is it important for what is it an instrument for what does it protect
1: one very important thing it protects is autonomy and but that's just only one thing and privacy and autonomy are related because losses of privacy make it easier for others to interfere with your life being watched all the time interferes with the kind of peace of mind that we need to make autonomous decisions so one story that i tell in the book that i found very um suggestive is a story of ballet legend Rudolf Nureyev. He decided to defect from the Soviet Union after a visit to France in 1961. And under French law, he was obligated to spend at least five minutes in a room by himself before signing a request for a sanctuary permit. And that protected him from the Russian officials who were trying to interfere with his choices. And it makes a lot of sense to have rules like this. Same thing with just think about... um, the secrecy of the vote, if nobody can see how you voted, they can't. it's much harder for them to pressure you to vote in a certain way or to coerce you. So privacy shields us from a wide array of possible risks and harms that come about as a result of others knowing certain things about us. Privacy protects things like our physical security. If a potential enemy doesn't know where you live, it will be harder for them to find you. It protects our finances, which is why we don't go around publishing the details of our credit cards. It protects us from being discriminated against. If a prospective employer doesn't know about your political or religious views, they can't hold those against you. And among many other things, it also protects us just from a sheer self-conscious emotion that can lead to self-censorship and conformity. We are social animals and we are just heavily influenced by the gaze of others.
0: Yeah, I mean, so just to be kind of explicit about it, it it protects a range of things. But just in terms of the mechanism by which it protects autonomy, as I understand it, it's kind of twofold. It's number one, it protects you from potential interferences with your decision-making or autonomy. Because if people know where you are or what you're thinking or what you might be doing... That gives them a, a wedge or an opportunity to intervene with your decision-making. And also, I guess it gives you an opportunity for authentic self-expression. Insofar as if, if you're not worried about people looking at what you're doing or judging what you're doing, you can be more true to your own values. So it's kind of the, it has those, that double mechanism of protecting autonomy. Is that correct?
1: That's exactly right. And there are studies that show that even with something very basic, like asking people whether a line is short or long, when other people say a line is short, even though it's obvious that it's long, uh, people tend to say that it's short just because we see things differently and are very much influenced by how others view it. So yeah, it's exactly right. Those are the two mechanisms through which uh, privacy protects autonomy.
0: Right. So this problem of conformity bias here... So, I mean, this kind of, touches upon another thing, which I suppose we'll talk about in more detail later on because it's a key theme in the book, but it, it hints at the important political and social value of privacy too in avoiding excessive conformity and authoritarianism, right? Um, what do you think of the claim that is sometimes touted by people, you know, I think maybe in the late 90s was very common for people to... Suggest that privacy was dead or was becoming outmoded. And it's also a claim that you hear echoed by some modern kind of tech evangelists and CEOs of tech companies. Is that just a kind of self interested claim that because it supports their business model, or is there any truth to the notion that privacy is somehow dying out as a value?
1: I think that's completely wrong. Uh, So in 2010, Zuckerberg was. Uh, cited as saying that we had evolved privacy norms and that people were comfortable sharing much more than than they used to. And the first thing to note is, as you said, he had a vested interest in people believing this. So I forget whether it was shortly before or or shorter after that statement, Facebook had, had changed the default public settings in Facebook so that people shared much more than they had intended to. And this matters. It matters because it make it it should make us question what Zuckerberg says, particularly uh, given that he bought the four houses surrounding his to protect his privacy. So it's quite ironic that he says that you know we have we are evolving privacy norms. But also, just equally suggestive is the fact that in 2019. Uh, Zuckerberg changed his tune and said that the future is private. And again, we should be skeptical of whatever he says, because he's the CEO of a very big company with uh, vested interests. So one way to interpret what he said is that he realized that privacy is not that at all, that people are more and more concerned about it, and that in order for Facebook to be palatable, he has to show some kind of concern or he has to um, give that message out. And in fact, we are seeing how people are more and more concerned about privacy. In a recent survey I carried out with a colleague at Oxford called Sean Brooke, we found that about 92% of people have had some kind of bad experience online related to privacy, from public humiliation to identity theft or doxing and many other kinds of harms. And I think one of the things that have happened is that we sort of forgot the value of privacy. We got dazzled by tech. They told us that they needed our data to function, that uh, there was nothing to worry about, there was nothing to fear, that they would be responsible with it. And we sort of believed that narrative for a while. And now we're saying that actually, no, privacy is as important as it was before. And the consequences of not having it are as bad as they used to be, if not worse. I tend to think that privacy is more important than ever, because data is flowing more freely than ever, and more more of it than ever. And that carries with it more risks than ever before.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't agree with Zuckerberg's claims, but I wonder, is there some truth to the notion, and I've I've heard this expressed before, that privacy is a more modern value? And... Now, intuitively this seems like it might be true to me, insofar as historically we most of us would have lived in much smaller scale societies where there probably was a lot more kind of ongoing surveillance and awareness of what you were doing by members of your tribe or your family or your village. And, you know, there's stories about this in different cultures as well, about the kind of claustrophobic environment of small village life because the sense that everyone knows your business at all times and then privacy and became more associated with kind of modern living in large cities where there was less of that kind of constant attention from your peers or social networks and you could be more anonymous and disconnected and so there is a sense in which it has become a a more important or more central value in our lives do you buy any of that kind of claim that there? the value of privacy is something that has shifted over time?
1: Not really. I think the value of privacy has always been extremely important. It's just that we have different circumstances in which we can afford it less or more. In every society that we've ever studied, there's some notion of privacy. It's just that in some cases, people are not able to exercise that uh, value so much. So, for instance, um, the Inuits, uh, the Eskimos in Uh, in very northern places, um, have the value of privacy, but they have to stay quite close to each other because it's a very uh, dangerous environment in which if they were to go off by themselves, they would likely risk dying. So what they do is um, they have a norm in which when you're looking at, at the wall in your igloo, you are not to be disturbed and people go around you kind of ignoring you're there. So we have social norms to protect privacy when we lack the economic means to protect more robustly. And in fact, if you look at history, the more wealthy societies become, the more opportunities for privacy they offer and people take those Those opportunities. So the more wealthy a society is, the more rooms in a house, the more walls, and the more people live by themselves.
0: Okay, I mean, that's interesting. There's another claim that's commonly made by economists, I think, when they look at the privacy debate in philosophy, and I've seen this argument made, that, okay, I mean, privacy might be of value, and people might care about it. But it also seems to be the case that people are willing to trade their privacy for other things that they care about or value. And in particular, I think the argument made in relation to digital media and digital services that people are willing to trade some of their privacy for convenient digital services, social media services, banking, whatever it might be, Google Maps. I don't know what the service happens to be. And I think the argument that economists make here is around revealed preferences, that, okay, people might say on surveys that they care about privacy, but actually, if you look at their behavior it's revealing a preference for trading privacy for some kind of convenience. What do you think about that argument? Do you think there's something wrong with assuming that we can draw inferences about what people value from revealed preferences in this way?
1: I think there's there's a lot in there. First, I, I do think there are some trades related to privacy that are very valuable. So two examples are when you go to the doctor you have to give in some of your privacy to be able to get adequate care. If you don't tell the doctor where it hurts, they, will, they won't they will be able to help you. Another good example is just intimacy. Whenever we become intimate, say, with a romantic partner, if you're not willing to give away some of your privacy, then that intimacy will not develop. It is by giving up our privacy that we become vulnerable to another. And that is a kind of very special tie because you give someone the tools in a way to hurt you trusting that they will never use it against you and that is part of what it means to be close to someone and to be intimate with someone however there are many kinds of privacy trade offs that are not worth it or that are done in a way that it's very questionable that is a, a freely Um, a free decision and a conscious one. Now, it's absolutely true that people tend to claim that they care deeply about privacy, but their behavior online doesn't seem to express that conviction. As you say, we use Google Maps and Gmail and Facebook and all kinds of things that we know are bad for our privacy. And experts have called this the privacy paradox. There are many hypotheses as to why this is so. I tend to think that the privacy paradox is probably the result of two elements. First, people don't realize how much and what they are sharing when they share. So, for instance, when you share a photograph online, most people don't realize that that photograph has metadata attached to it. Like, for example, location data or that like, like biometrics, like fingerprints could be cloned from a photograph. So there are many instances in which we're not aware of what we're sharing when we share When people click on a Facebook page that's dedicated to curly fries, and when you click like, this is a true example, it would never occur to those people that they might be giving away a correlate for their IQ, but it's actually a correlate for their IQ. So data is very abstract and surprising in this way, and I don't think that it's reasonable to say that people know what they're sharing when they go online and do all sorts of things. The second element, I think, of the privacy paradox is that people feel like they don't have a meaningful choice. So I think many people think, well, if I know Facebook and Google and governments and all these corporations are tracking me and I can't really stop it entirely, why should I care? Why should I even try? Why should I avoid using facebook if facebook has a profile on me even if i've never used it so i think one of the part of what my book wants to contribute is a reason for why you should protect your privacy even if you are going to fail at protecting it entirely because i want to make people aware that their choices do matter. They just don't matter in an obvious way and in a kind of straightforward way. But when we protect our privacy, we can make a difference. And secondly, we make a statement. It's an expressive statement of caring about privacy. And I think people don't realize how sensitive companies and governments are to this kind of sentiment and how their feelings about privacy are being monitored and listened to.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, even the example of Zuckerberg saying that privacy is the future, that's at least in part a response to what he perceives to be a shift in users' values around technology and the need to maybe provide greater protections for privacy because that's something that his service users care about.
1: Exactly. And I think corporations and governments are much more aware than people themselves about how much they depend on the corporate cooperation of people for surveillance to work. And in fact, a few years ago, Facebook started getting worried because people were sharing less and less personal stuff on there. They were sharing more news and music, but less personal details and less photographs. And they got worried about it because they depend on personal data for their business model. And they changed the algorithm to incentivize more sharing. But this is something that just shows how sensitive Facebook is changes in our behavior
0: okay i mean there there was one a couple of questions i actually wanted to ask as a follow-up to this there's an example that you use in the book So, so the first point you made there that um you know people aren't fully cognizant or aware of what they're giving up and what data they're giving up and also then tied into this they don't perceive that they have a meaningful choice one of the examples that you use in the book which actually i wasn't aware of was the google map data and the way in which that collects data, even if you have selected a preference to not share location data. Could you just maybe explain that example, because I found that quite eye-opening, as an illustration of the way in which companies construct these services in a way that denies you, in a sense, a meaningful control over your data?
1: Yeah, the Google example was quite concerning because it felt particularly misleading. There there was a setting in which you could turn off location data, apparently, uh, so that it wouldn't track you. And then it turned out that that didn't entirely turn it off. It turned out that you had to go to a quite obscure setting that was called something like activity settings, and there you had to turn off uh, all activity settings tracking as well, because otherwise your location got tracked through other ways apart from the Google Maps. And this is just an example of how companies have been very misleading in the way they design settings and in the way they express their messages. And people are made to feel as if their privacy is being better protected than in fact it is, and that they have more control than what they actually have.
0: Uh, and the other question I wanted to ask here was uh, to do with Uh, the the lack of meaningful choice and whether we do have to make this trade. So, uh, like, is it true that we somehow get better and more convenient user-friendly services by trading our data for them? I, I mean, one example that occurs to me is that, you know, Apple's AI voice assistant seems on balance to be much worse than Google or Amazon's voice assistants. And I think... I don't know if this is true, but it seems that part of the problem there might be just that data isn't collected and shared in quite the same way on Apple devices as it is on Google or Amazon devices or services. So is there any truth to this notion that in order to get the better product, we actually do have to make the trade?
1: It's complicated. In some cases, it might be true that an algorithm will work better with more data, Now, even if that is true, there is a whole other leap from that being the case to then having our data sold and bought and shared with their parties and having personalized ads. All that other thing are still just a business model. So Google could work just as well with just as much data it has um, if it had another funding. If we were to say, pay them even just $10 a year For their services, they would be an incredibly wealthy company, and they would need to use that data in ways that compromise our autonomy, or that um, make democracy endangered, and so on. So there's that. Another thing to take into account is that many products haven't had the chance of showing how good they can be because people don't use them as much. So an example is DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo doesn't use your data for any of the bad purposes that google uses it um, but it doesn't have as much data on just searches to be as good as google now it's gotten a lot lot better at the beginning when i started using it very often i would find myself going back to google to to search what i wanted to find and now it's less and less the case that i have to do that and it just shows how the more people use it the better it gets and it doesn't commercialize with our data Uh, furthermore Even though it's true that today we have algorithms that work better with more data, we shouldn't assume that that's going to be the case in the future. When we talk about AI, we are really trying to create actual intelligence. And if you compare today's algorithms with a child, you can see how different and how deficient the algorithms are when you teach something to a child. Usually, you only have to teach them once or twice for them to get it, and then they can use that knowledge to you and use it for something else. They can generalize it. Whereas algorithms, you have to give them troves and troves and troves of data for them to get something, and even then, they might get it in a way that's got totally just based on correlations. And you, if you change something very small, it might lead to all kinds of mistakes in the future. So I tend to think that the more AI gets developed, the less data it will use. The more we actually are able to create true intelligence, the less data it will need. So look, I mean, the main
0: analogy or argument or idea in your book is in the title, which is that you know, privacy is power. Well, now what do you actually mean by that? Um, I mean, one way that I had of interpreting it in the chapter you have is that we gain power over others by gaining privacy and taking away privacy from them and vice versa. We, we lose power if we lose our own privacy and others gain access to our information. Is that the idea? I mean, how, what's the analysis of, of power and the relationship between privacy and power that kind of drives this central thesis of the book?
1: Yes, there is a relation, a close relation between giving up your privacy and losing power or giving that power to someone else. My analysis is more important with regards to corporations and governments because it is the political environment in which we live in. But it also applies to more personal relationships. So again, with the case of your romantic partner, when you give up your privacy and tell them about who you are and what you've done and your uh, biggest fears and hopes and so on, you give that person a lot of power over you, power to help you or power to harm you. Now, the best relationships are those in which giving up that privacy gives the other person power over you and they use that power to help you. And so in that way, It doesn't necessarily mean that every time you give up privacy, you give up power because that giving up privacy could come back to you in an empowering way. Another example is your doctor. So when you give your personal data to your doctor and they help you and heal you, then you're empowered. But for that to happen, we need to have strict rules in place to make sure that that data can only be used for our interest and not against us. And that's not the case at the moment. The case at the moment is that whatever personal data you give up for companies and governments, you can be sure that it will be used both in your interest in the sense that, yes, you might get better products, but also there's no guarantee that, that it won't be used against you. And in fact, it is used against you all the time. So at the moment, the way, because we are lacking the proper regulations to make sure that data is used in our interest. Um, If we give too much of our personal data to corporations like we are doing, we're giving them too much power and we shouldn't be surprised when we realize that they are writing the rules of our society and that they are having even more power than our government. If we were to give too much personal data to our government, there would be the risk of sliding into authoritarianism because data is a very big temptation it can be used in so many ways and it's too dangerous to give it up with any guarantees that it will help empower us. Yeah. I mean,
0: one thing that struck me then about that idea or thesis in the book is that um, power then is kind of the more, is, well, to some extent, um, the more important variable or factor to bear in mind, at least with respect to the situation which we we currently find ourselves. So the problem is that we have given too much of our privacy to, corporations in the surveillance capitalist economy and to governments and they've gained power over us as a result and so now what we need to do is something to redistribute the power imbalance a part of the solution then is to protect our privacy more and to give up less of our privacy but isn't it also true that part of the solution is to take some privacy away from these corporations and, and governments and you know this is a long-standing idea in Democratic political theory that it's important for government decision making to be transparent and for government officials to lose some of their privacy in order for us to hold them to account properly. So, isn't that same idea apply here when it comes to the surveillance capitalist economy that are the corporations that operate within it? That they need to give up some of their privacy in order to correct for this imbalance of power.
1: There is some truth to that, but I'm quite skeptical that transparency can do so much work. I have. In my research, I've encountered many examples uh, in which we know exactly what's going on, and yet the people that are doing things that they shouldn't be doing still do them. And this happens both in Google and with corporations. So we know exactly, I mean, we don't know the details of Google's algorithms, but we know enough to uh, to know that they are using data in ways that are very questionable, and yet we, they're still doing it and even perhaps even more with the case of Facebook so even though transparency might be a necessary condition it's certainly not sufficient to bring companies to account and no i think i think the the most fundamental value here is privacy and the power asymmetry that we are experiencing is just a way in which the lack of privacy has manifested so if you thought that the most fundamental value is power, then you could think that breaking Facebook up and Google up could solve the problem, right? But you could still have a bunch of small companies that use data in ways that harm citizens and that would be just as bad in a way. So the way I see it, it's just that this extreme lack of privacy has manifested in this extreme power asymmetry. But the fundamental value as well as the fundamental um, solution is in privacy.
0: Okay. Uh, So you kind of touched upon this already. And so I might need to ask this question in a different way, but I mean, some of the examples you've used already, like within the context of intimate relationships and with doctor patient relationship, they suggest that there's, there is some value oftentimes to giving up a bit of your privacy and maybe it isn't, same as surveillance necessarily but having somebody being able to access and monitor information about you can be beneficial in certain contexts nevertheless one of the things that you're very critical of in the book is the the phenomenon of mass surveillance or the more euphemistic term is you know bulk data collection It's often touted as being important in protecting people against terrorist threats I guess there's also now claims around health care and health protection. Why are you skeptical about the claims of, of mass surveillance in particular and, and bulk data collection? I mean, is there no study that suggests that these things are of benefit to society? Are they Are the benefits overstated and the risks
1: understated? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think data can be valuable and can be useful, but it's not magic. And many times there's a lot of ideology surrounding data as if it were the thing that's going to solve all our problems. And the benefits have been overblown and its risks and disadvantages have been systematically gone unrecognized. With respect to terrorism, it just turns out that mass surveillance is not the kind of thing that is useful to find terrorists because Bulk data collection is and big data is very good at finding patterns in data that is repeated by many people many times. So, for instance, big data is very good at trying to figure out what we buy and what, we'll, what we will buy because... There are billions of people buying things every day of every week of every month or every year. So the kind of data that that big data can work with is really huge. Whereas terrorism is a very rare event. And it often happens in ways that have never happened before and that might not never happen again. So no matter how much mass surveillance we could have had, nobody would have been able to predict that um, somebody would use a pot to commit a terrorist attack in the Boston Marathon or that somebody would use a truck to hurt people. That's just the kind of thing that is not amenable to prediction by bulk data collection and analysis. And so the benefits of that have been completely overblown and the risks are never never mentioned or, or kind of... Um, Dismissed too easily, when in fact we are really jeopardizing democracy, and we are encouraging an s- economic system that is based on the systematic and mass violation of rights.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk about the the problems of of data and the harms in a moment. But I just want to continue a little bit on this theme of the the problems with mass. Surveillance and data collection. So, I mean, the the terrorism example, I can understand that the rarity of the event means it's not amenable to big data type solutions. But what about but healthcare? I mean, we had a whole other episode on COVID nineteen and tracing apps and all that, and that's just one example of the way in which you know, mass surveillance might be used in a healthcare context or a public health context. I mean, are there benefits to mass collection of data in healthcare settings that? we should be conscious of or again are there problems and lots of you know false positives or false patterns that are being found that make it less useful or biased patterns in the data that make it less useful than it is alleged to be
1: it's too general to say that data is not valuable for health or that data um, personal data is gold for health it depends on what kind of data it is how accurate it is how it's being collected and how it's being analyzed it depends on so many factors that there's no one answer but in general i think it has been thought of a little bit too optimistically and in the case of the contact tracing apps for instance it was one of the first reactions in march and april and people were really thinking that this would be the solution to get us out of this situation and that doesn't seem to be the case at best contact tracing apps can help but really, the, the heavy lifting is done by a very good system of testing that it has to be very quick and it has to be have enough tests. And the app can only help because it works through proxies. The app can tell us who is infected and who isn't. The app at most can remind us who might have been in contact with whom. And it it will have false positive and false negatives because as we talked about in a, a different podcast the app won't be able to recognize certain contacts that might be meaningful epidemiologically so for instance if you hug someone even if you don't stay with them for 15 minutes but you have this kind of close contact or you kiss them and the app won't be able to recognize other things like potentially getting infected from a contaminated surface although it seems that that is quite rare, and it could still happen, and so on and so forth. So, there is the possibility that um, personal data will be very important in medicine, but it's not a magic wand, and we can use personal data for medicine. We don't have to buy and sell it, and we have to make sure that whoever manages data are bound by fiduciary duties. Fiduciary duties are duties that are implemented in professional relationships in which there, are, there is an asymmetry of power such that the person who is a professional has a lot more knowledge than the patient or the client. Another example is lawyers and clients and financial advisors and clients. And these are settings in which conflicts of interest could appear. So you could imagine a doctor wanting to perform a surgery on someone because they want to practice their skills or they want another data point for their research, or they want to earn more money. And fiduciary duties make sure that that doctor can only perform that that surgery if it's going to be beneficial first and foremost to the patient. And in the same way, it's fine for um, health institutions to use our data to develop medicine, but they have to be bound by fiduciary duties that make sure that that data will be used for our benefit and not will not be for instance sold or shared in ways that are irresponsible we have a very good example in the uk when royal free hospital shared millions of records with deepmind which is a part of google without any kind of guarantee of legal guarantee that that data wouldn't be used to be linked to people's Google accounts or that it wouldn't be used in other ways. They just made a promise that wasn't legally binding and that's just not good enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably worth dwelling on this for a moment because it's, again, a key key theme in your book and, again, one of the solutions to the problem that you identify. Uh, So maybe we could just emphasize it a bit, this idea that a lot of the problem with the data economy now is not just that you're trading some of your data with particular service users or providers like Facebook or Google or whatever service provider it happens to be. But again, that there is a whole market in that data that it is being sold on to third parties. It's being brokered between advertisers of services and between corporations and the government as well. That this, this interesting uh, way in which the, the government uses the data collected by private corporations for certain purposes. And so it's that kind of... The, the, it's those downstream consequences of of the way in which data collected for one purpose is used and brokered and exchanged that is the main problem. And so a, a key solution to that is to set up some system of robust, enforced fiduciary duties for the corporations and institutions that collect our data. Maybe you could discuss that in a bit more detail, that
1: uh, idea. Yes, the idea is that as long as we allow personal data to be profitable in itself, sooner or later it will be misused because it's very hard to keep data safe and there are too many actors and agents that coveted. And attackers will always have an advantage over defenders in cyberspace because defenders have to defend themselves against all possible attacks at at every moment. So if you have an attacker who wants that data badly enough, sooner or later, they are likely to get it. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that we should think about personal data as a kind of toxic asset. And I make the analogy with asbestos. Asbestos is a very useful material because it's very easy and cheap to mine. And it's incredibly useful for for building because it doesn't catch fire easily. So we have in the past, we put it in our plumbing, in our walls, in cars. And it turns out that unfortunately, it's quite toxic and that it causes, it causes cancer. And in fact, hundreds of thousands of people die from cancer every year because of these toxic ingredients that we put in our building. And in the same way, data, personal data is very easy and cheap to mine. It's incredibly useful. You can do many things with it but it's so risky that we should be very, very careful in how we collect it and how we use it. And I argue that it's poisoning individuals by exposing us to harms like public humiliation, extortion, um, identity theft, discrimination, and so on. It's It's poisoning institutions, because every data point is a potential liability, a potential lawsuit. It's poisoning societies because it's undermining equality as well as democracy. You and I are not being treated as equals. We are being treated on the basis of our data, on the basis of whether we are a man or a woman, fat or slim, rich or poor, living in one part of the country or another. And that doesn't treat us as equal citizens. There is this Idea now in, but that's very popular in tech, but in society more generally, that we should connect everything to each other. We should connect all databases together. And part of the motivation is to be able to collect all data so that we can analyze it and do, do more powerful analysis. But in fact, this is extremely dangerous and it's a very bad idea for cybersecurity because if your very insecure smart kettle is uh, connected to your quite good, phone a hacker could get into your phone through your kettle and we're doing this in the whole of society such that imagine that this is like your system is like a house and instead of having just one front door you have 25 doors and 25 windows it just provides a lot more opportunities for attackers to be able to breach the system And one of the analogies that I use in the book is to have compartments, like we have compartments in a boat so that we make sure that even if there is damage in one part of the boat, the boat doesn't sink, or like we have fire doors to make sure that uh, we can contain the fire. In the same way, we have to treat data in a way that contains it such that it doesn't get misused in ways that we don't want it to be used in, or, or that even if there's a leak, it's a leak of only a little piece of data and not the whole thing.
0: I mean, could we make this a bit more kind of personal for people as well? So an argument that people often make and that you discuss a good bit in the book is the notion that, well, you know, I'm not that important. I have nothing to hide. I'm happy to share my data. It's not going to have any negative consequences for me because I'm such a harmless and unimportant and insignificant individual. You're kind of critical of that self-perception or that notion that's out there. Why is it? Like what are the ways in which my seemingly innocuous data about the kinds of funny gifs that I like on Facebook, maybe that's not the best example, but you know things that I like with or like or interact with on on Facebook or some other social media platform. How can the data from that rebound on myself and my society in a toxic way?
1: A good example is maybe these quizzes that get offered on Facebook, like to see whether you are more like a cartoon or another, or whether, you know, which character would you be in that movie? or And those are quizzes designed to mine very personal data from you. And one of the dangerous things about privacy is that it's very common to think that it's not important until you lose it. And then once you lose it, it's too late because you can't recall that data. So, for example... You might be asked in one of these quizzes about things like where you grew up or what your pet name is. And then that response might be used to get into your banking account because it's one of the questions that was used um, as a fallback in case you don't remember your password. That is a very kind of direct possible consequence. But even if you think you have nothing to hide and you have nothing to fear, say, you are a white man who is quite well off and quite healthy, there might be aspects in your life that you don't know about that might make you very vulnerable. So one example is you might have a disease that you still don't know about, but that actually could be picked up by data collection. For instance, um, just by the way you scroll down your contacts on your phone and how you use your fingers on your phone, things like um, the early onset of Parkinson could be inferred. And that might lead you to have very expensive insurance. That might lead you to um, your employer possibly discriminate against you. That might lead to all kinds of consequences that you might not even know you're a victim of. So say you apply for a loan and it gets rejected because of something that's on your file that a data broker sold to the bank. And for all you know, that data might be inaccurate and you will never know about it because of this system that's so opaque but that if you hadn't shared something online maybe you would have been spared from from being the victim of that kind of discrimination that is one way in which it's very direct or for instance you might be get uh, you might be denied life insurance but there are other ways in which you might be harming people around you or your society so suppose you give up um you you do one of these dna tests that is becoming so popular and you give up your genetic data information to one of these companies, and you are exposing not only yourself, but also your siblings, your parents, your children, your cousins, and even very distant kin who might suffer consequences from it. So in in, in one case, there was a man who was deported from Canada because Canada wanted to find an excuse um, not to give that person asylum, and they used genetic data to try to prove that he was in fact genetically from a different country um, than he had claimed, even though evidence seemed to show that he was born in that other country that he had claimed he was born in. So this is just one example in which you could harm someone and that you've never met, but it can be a result of, of your exposing your data. And then more generally, you can, you can a culture of exposure harms society and harms democracy And perhaps the clearest example to illustrate this was Cambridge Analytica. So only 270,000 people agreed to donate their data and consented to Cambridge Analytica analyzing that data. And from that, Cambridge Analytica got to the data of 87 million people, which in turn they used to create psychological profiles that were used to predict and influence behavior in the whole of the citizenry. So in a way, those 270,000 people who were paid a dollar to give up this information traded their privacy for, um, in essence, the legitimacy of their democracy and the well-functioning of their democracy.
0: Yeah, I mean, mean, one question I would have about that, and this kind of goes back to one of the examples you gave about (laughs) You're detecting the early onset of Parkinson's from the movement of scrolling down a newsfeed or something like that, and I think also ties into the kind of product or service that Cambridge Analytica were selling to political parties. I wonder. I mean, are there are the claims that they make on behalf of what they can actually infer from the data overblown in one sense, but then also is that actually does that matter because? Is the issue really what, that people have deluded themselves or convinced themselves into thinking that this data is useful for political purposes or healthcare purposes or whatever? And so that's the problem, is that the, the, the perception dominates. And so that in itself is what gives rise to the kind of potentially toxic uses or effects of data collection.
1: It's all of it. So let's suppose it's not effective. What the first concern is that they try to thwart democracy by, for example, disincentivizing certain kinds of voters from going to vote. And just like we punish people for trying to kill other people, even when they fail, we should be very worried about somebody trying to thwart democracy, even if they are unsuccessful. And the second worry is that even if they were unsuccessful, it raises doubts about the legitimacy of our democracy. And that can be just as eroding and just as harmful as if they had been successful. And it's, it's unclear whether we can tell to what extent they were successful, which is quite scary. Now to the question about whether in fact they were successful, I tend to think that chances are they, was, they were successful enough. So when we talk about targeted ads and targeted content, The studies that we have so far show that these are effective, but not very effective. So, for instance, you might have a difference in in affecting the behavior of people from anywhere to kind of one to four percent difference um, in affecting their behavior. And that doesn't seem like a lot. And in fact, it's not a lot. But when we're talking about elections, that could be the difference between winning or losing an election. And in fact, many elections have been lost and won on the basis of a few thousands of votes. So if you can identify people who are more likely to be persuadable, and this is what Cambridge Analytica called them, persuadables, um, it certainly introduces enough of a danger into democracy that we shouldn't allow this risk to happen at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. So there's kind of two, two issues there, which is that the perception that they are doing something manipulative to the system can delegitimate it and create problems, and also then, even if They aren't particularly effective. They might be effective enough, given a sufficiently large population, to sway or make a difference to an election outcome. Exactly. Yeah, I want to kind of rewind just a question that I did have about the value of having a surveillance infrastructure as opposed to mass surveillance and bulk data collection. This is something that strikes me in relation to terrorism or sort of criminal justice uses of surveillance technologies that i totally agree that there are problems with mass data collection or bulk data collection so you know trawling through dna databases to try and find a match with a crime scene strikes me as problematic um because that's likely to have lots of false positives same probably true with trying to foil terrorist plots based on bulk data collection but if you have other kinds of information that suggests that a particular organization or group of people or individual might be linked to a terrorist plot or a crime or something like that. Having the surveillance infrastructure itself might be valuable and that you can actually plug into it and use it then for positive security or criminal justice uses. Um, So what what I was wondering is whether it was possible to believe two things, whether there is some value to having this kind of vast surveillance infrastructure for security and safety purposes when needs be, but also that bulk data collection is a problem and is something that should be avoided. What do you think of that?
1: I think that the evidence seems to show that targeted surveillance is quite enough to find criminals when uh, we have suspects and to investigate criminals, and that we don't need this kind of mass surveillance uh, for those purposes. Furthermore, suppose that you know, policymakers were absolutely um, convinced by my book and they followed every recommendation. And we banned the data economy, we banned personalized targeting, we put fiduciary duties, every measure gets in place. Just on account of the amount of computers we have and how we use them, that is enough to have more data on people than we've ever had before. Even if we can't access content at all, metadata is quite hard to encrypt and metadata is data about data it's the kind of data that computers produce just by um working and it it's needed to uh, to work in the right way. So, for me to send you an an email and for you to receive it, um, there has to be information about who sends it and who receives it, and that is a kind of metadata that's very hard to encrypt. And that in itself creates more data to find criminals than have than we have ever had before, than the police or did or intelligence agencies have ever had before. So, we have enough data.
0: Okay. So, I mean, w- w- just to wrap up, then I guess of the book or the uh, questions. What should we do about this? And what should we do at a, an individual level? Are there things that we can do as individuals that can try to redress the problems that you outline in your book? And then what should we do at a societal or institutional level to redress some of these problems?
1: We need regulation, and there's no way around it. We can't avoid it. But for regulation to happen, people need to put more pressure on policymakers and companies, and to express how much they care about privacy for regulation to happen. So, as an individual, try to choose privacy whenever you can. So, be very respectful of other people's privacy. You know, don't do a genetic test unless you need it for medical reasons. They're why wi- they're, they're widely inaccurate anyway. About forty percent of the results are false. And um, ask other people before posting their pictures up on. Facebook or Twitter or online. Whenever you get shared something that violates someone's privacy, don't share it around and tell that person that you, you're, you disagree with that, that that's not okay. Uh, try to find privacy-friendly alternatives. So instead of Google search, you try DuckDuckGo, it's quite good. Instead of Gmail, try ProtonMail. Instead of WhatsApp, try Signal find privacy opportunities and seize them, and also contact your political representatives and tell them that you're worried about privacy and tell them what the kind of policies that you support. In the book, I argue that in terms of regulation, we should ban the data economy in the sense of personal data shouldn't be the kind of thing that you can buy and sell. Even in the most capitalist of societies, we agree that there are certain things that should be outside of the market, like votes and people and the results of sports matches. And we should add personal data to that list. We should also ban personalized ads and content. The benefits that we get from it are minimal. We can get them in other ways, like contextual search ads. And that means that, you know, when you search for shoes, then you get ads for shoes. And those ads don't need to know anything about you. They don't need to know who you are or where you've been. And the disadvantages of personalized ads and personalized content is, are so huge that they really jeopardize democracy and they're not worth it. We should implement fiduciary duties to anyone who wants to manage or collect data. We should really have much better cybersecurity standards. This is a basic thing. Right now, there are so many smart appliances that are insecure that if hackers were to hack just 10% of them in a country and they would turn them on at the same time, they could bring down the national grid. Just like we had a pandemic now and we knew it was going to happen, we know that sooner or later there's going to be a massive cyber attack and we should try to prevent that as much as possible. And there are other smaller kinds of regulations that I talk about in the book, but I think those are the biggest ones, the most important ones.
0: Yeah, and people also need a reason to buy the book and read it, which I definitely recommend. So I'd just like to maybe wrap up there and say thanks for joining me for this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, John.